The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 62, Isaiah chapter 62, and we'd like to focus on verse 4, but we'll begin at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 of Isaiah 62, leading up to that. Isaiah chapter 62 and in verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. The Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shalt thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. I, I know we have quite a few songs in our hymn book about Beulah land, and this is actually the only verse in the Bible that references Beulah land and I think that we can see as we go through this actually chapters 61 and 62 in my opinion are somewhat of a continuous thought and I think we'll be able to see that primarily primarily Beulah land is pointing toward heaven and that's uh, what the song, particularly Sweet Beulah Land, is, is pointing toward, right? I, I'm kind of homesick for a country that I haven't seen before. It's pointing you toward heaven. But as with many things in uh, the kingdom of God, we can experience a little bit of the blessings of uh, eternal Beulah Land, if you will. We can feel some of the blessings of that uh, blessing of, of the eternal aspect of we can feel it right here and right now here in the church kingdom, right? We've been saved by grace and we've been given eternal life, but God's given us the privilege of the abundant life here in time, right? He's saved us to heaven, but he's given us the kingdom of heaven that we can experience that here in time. He's saved us to heaven by his free and sovereign grace, but we can feel the power of that salvation here in the church kingdom. And I believe it's certainly true of Beulah land as well. It, it, points us toward heaven. It points us toward the uh, married land, as the word Beulah literally means married, the, the land that will be in perfect union and fellowship and communion with God, the beautiful intimacy that God gave in a marriage relationship and pointing toward the relationship, the beautiful intimacy and love that he has toward his bride, the church. And, and that perfect union of Christ as our husband and the church as the bride of Christ will be perfectly experienced in heaven. But we can feel that blessing of Beulah land right here and right now as well. So 
Backing up to Isaiah chapter 61, as I said, uh, sometimes these Old Testament passages can be difficult to, uh, to rightly divide. Many of them have a direct application uh, to the Old Testament Jews, but many of them are still pointing toward the New Testament kingdom and pointing toward Zion. And I believe that verse, uh, I believe that chapter 61 flows right into chapter 62. So we'd like to try to consider them mostly together this morning. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 61 and in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now we're going to find that this is primarily speaking of a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ. But this is certainly true of the, uh, the gospel message as a whole, right? Aren't you glad that Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross and we can actually proclaim liberty to the captives, right? It's not an offer of salvation, it's a proclamation. It's a declaration of what Christ has already done. And we have this beautiful message of the gospel that it's good tidings. You know, it's not really good tidings or good news to me if I'm told that I have to do something to go to heaven. And if I don't do it right, then God may just cast me into hell. That doesn't calm my soul. But what does calm my soul is reading in John 19 and verse 30 that it is finished, right? That he finished the work of salvation on the cross. And we thank God for that. To bind up the brokenhearted. And to proclaim liberty to the captives. I mean, if you feel uh, captive to sin, not just in an eternal sense, we've been saved from the power of sin. And when we pass away, we'll be in heaven with God. But we struggle with the bondage of sin here on a daily basis as we try to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Well, isn't it good to be reminded that God has given us liberty from that captivity, right? Not just in an eternal sense. He saved us by grace and we're going to be in heaven. But he has given you everything at your disposal by the power of the Spirit of God to mortify those deeds of the flesh, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Uh, I've always enjoyed the analogy of the gospel that someone is uh, a condemned criminal and they, they are legally pardoned, uh, legally redeemed, in a judicial sense when the judge signs the order but aren't you sad for that person on death row for that period of time after they have been legally uh purged of all their sins so to say in a, in a spiritual sense but they don't know about it unless somebody tells them isn't it sad for somebody to be uh they have their date uh <laughs> their uh uh, execution date. Let's say if they have the, the death penalty and they're, they, they've already ordered their last meal and you get to order whatever you want and then there's like, well, at least I can have that one last meal. But they still feel the burden and the anxiety of thinking they're about to die and they're wringing their hands and they're having uh, elevated high blood pressure, right? They're really nervous about it. But then somebody comes in and instead of they, they knock at the, well, they open the door of the prison uh, and then uh, instead of them offering them their last meal, they tell them, hey, you can go free. Now, they, they were legally freed long before that person came and told them about it, right? But boy, they still felt a lot of burden and anxiety and fear. And the gospel says, hey, you've been set free. You can walk out. <laughs> you can walk out the front door of the prison. The gospel 
tells us about that. It, it, it declares the opening of the prison to them that are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And we're actually stopping there in the middle of the sentence, but we're stopping there for a reason. I'd ask you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. As Jesus is beginning his ministry, and he's been doing a lot of miracles in other places, and now he's finally made his way back to Nazareth. He's made his way back to his hometown. And he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the rabbi would teach there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, but then he would open, open it up for other exhortations or other people that may have a verse on their mind. So here in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. So when they offered that other opportunity after the rabbis had taught what they had planned for that day, they opened up an opportunity for someone else to have exhortations from the Word of God. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias, which is Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, verse 20. He closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Then they go on to say, is, that, is this not Joseph's son? Isn't he the carpenter's son that we saw running around the streets of Nazareth? And now he's trying to preach with such authority. And then he goes on to say that no prophet is accepted in his own country. He gives the example of uh, during the days of Elijah when they had that great drought. He goes to a widow of Sidon. And there were, verse 27, were there not many lepers in Israel? And uh, none of them were cleansed, save Naaman the Syrian. And God shows his, his sovereignty to show blessings to Gentiles right there. That both of those people, the widow of Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, were Gentiles that God sovereignly chose to show favor and blessing unto, showing God's sovereignty and election and choosing to bless who he sees fit to bless. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And they were so mad at the Son of God for teaching his sovereignty and choosing to bless who he sees fit to bless. They were so incensed with this hometown boy, the Son of God, coming back home to the synagogue and preaching this message that they tried to kill the Son of God. I'll tell you, people just never cease to amaze you. <laughs> now, God being God, what did he do? Jesus, they tried to throw him off uh, the edge of the hill, and what did he do? He just walked right through them. <laughs> he just walked right through them as the Son of God, even though they were trying to kill him. But I want you to notice right here, very interesting. Jesus says, that the Spirit of God is upon me. Again, primarily a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ. But he ends this in verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and he closed the book. And then he said, this day is this fulfilled in your ears. 
Now, what's very interesting about that is when we go back to Isaiah chapter 61, we find that not only is that in the middle of what we would call today our verses. Now, I'm sure you know that there were not necessarily chapter divisions and verse notations in the original scroll that Jesus was reading from. So it was just a straight through continuous uh, thought. But in the middle of our verse, not only is it in the middle of the verse, but in the way that it's translated in our uh, English King James Bibles, it's in the middle of a sentence. And, and this kind of gives you a little bit of an indication how challenging uh, interpreting some prophecy is on occasion. Because what we find right here is in verse 1 all the way up to the comma in verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. All of that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, especially there on that particular day in the synagogue in Nazareth. But the rest of the sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now that, that shows how challenging it could be to uh, interpret scripture sometimes is because this is something that we actually know definitively that all the way up to the comma was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But the day of vengeance where all those that mourn that will be perfectly comforted, that day has not come yet. That will come at the second coming of the Lord. And this is a verse we actually have a, a uh, exposition of by Jesus Christ. And in the middle of the same verse, you have a fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. But then you have the rest of it pointing toward the second coming of the Lord. So with that being the case, the day of vengeance of our God, when he will exact judgment on all of those that were not chosen by God before the world began, that Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sin. That day of vengeance was poured out for the elect on the cross on Jesus Christ, but his wrath and his vengeance, the full cup of that vengeance will be poured out on the non-elect for all of eternity and to comfort all them that mourn. We're thankful to have the the presence of the Holy Comforter here in time, right? We're, we're thankful that God promised that, that Jesus promised that before we went back to heaven, that he was going to send another Comforter that's going to give you uh, peace in the midst of, of mourning. And we thank God for that. But we also understand the reality that all of our sorrows and mourning here in this world is not going to be fully comforted here in this world. That final fulfillment of that perfect comfort will be at the second coming of the Lord. And to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, God's people. And we know that Zion is portrayed many times as the kingdom of God and the church kingdom to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, and to give unto them beauty for ashes. I'm thankful that God gives us beauty for ashes here in time as well. He, in his providence and in his love, we see things that fall apart. Ashes are the remnants of something that was burned, right? Something that, that was in a previous state, but now it's been burned, and the only thing that's left is ashes. And God is so gracious in his providence many times to take the remnants of those broken, burned up things and then gives us great beauty for that. But we also know that not every single ash here in time is going to be turned into beauty. No, it, there's a lot of sorrow in this world that's not going to be perfectly uh, remedied 
until the Son of God returns. And then, just speaking very practically, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back the second time? He's going to literally burn up this heaven, uh, or this earth, rather. He's going to burn it up with fire. What's it? Now, I understand. Bear with me here. We know there's not going to be a bunch of ashes, <laughs> right? Uh, that that a, a, a earth-sized pile of ashes when Jesus returns. But the earth is going to be burned up and turned into ashes, if you will. But what does he replace uh, those ashes with? The new heavens and the new earth, right? New Jerusalem. So we're so thankful that God is faithful to give us beauty for ashes here in time. But the, the primary fulfillment of this in this prophecy, I believe, is speaking of the beauty for ashes that we'll have in heaven, right? And then the oil of joy for the mourning, the garment of praise. And the garment of praise we're going to find right here, these garments uh, are, are the, the garments of the bride of Christ as the bride is perfectly adorned, perfectly prepared for her husband. And we want to make the, the church and the bride of Christ as beautiful as we can here in time. But we also know that the bride of Christ is not going to be perfect here in this world. It will only be perfect at the second coming of the Lord, when that bride is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, Let's look at chapter 62 and in verse 4 very quickly before we make our way back to a little bit more in 61. We have this contrasted here um, in Isaiah 62 and in verse 4. God is focusing on his bride, first of all, but secondly, he's focusing on his land. We see these contrasted right here. Thou shalt be no more termed forsaken. Thou shalt, that's speaking of the bride, speaking of the church. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. And thou shalt be called Hephzibah, which is the Lord shall delight in her. And thy land, Beulah, and for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. So you kind of have three different phrases right there, right? The first one is speaking of a personal relationship with the bride of Christ, with her. But then it's talking of the land, right? You have the person and then you have the land. And these first terms right here, speaking of, of the people of God in their fallen state, in their sinful state, thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be called desolate. Something that's very interesting about here, you have... The first few terms right here, forsaken and desolate, are the negative terms. And the King James translator saw fit to translate those into English words here. There's Hebrew words that are the makeup for these. I'll let you look them up. Uh, I tried pronouncing them earlier and don't think I did a good job, so I'll let you look them up. But they saw fit to use English words in the negative sense, but then they left the Hebrew in the positive words because Hephzibah and Beulah, Beulah is actually an tr English transliteration of that Hebrew word. And aren't you glad that they saw fit to do that? Because what, how it would literally read right here if they just used the English words, but thou shalt be called, my delight is in her, and thy land married. And it's good to it's great to think about the land as being married, right? But aren't you glad that the King James translator saw fit to give us the beauty of the language of Beulah land, right? That's the only reason we have it. If they just, if they just translated it into English, it would just be, thy land shall be married. And that's a good thing to think about, isn't it? That the land will be married, but I'm glad that they gave us 
I, I believe by the direction of the, the Spirit of God, as God was blessing them, translated in that way, to give us the beauty of that language to point us toward Beulah Land, right? But I want you to notice the, the bride, we'll focus on these three of the bride first. The first, you're forsaken, but then at this later date, you're going to be called Hephzibah, which is my delight is in her. And then he reaffirms that in the third phrase, for the Lord delighteth in thee. So there was a period of time, because of the sin of Adam, right, that God's people were taken away from beautiful fellowship with God. But now that's going to be restored. My delight is in her. And then you have the land. Thy land shall no more be termed desolate. But instead of desolate, your land is going to be married. Your land is going to be Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in her, and thy land shall be married. Now, this literally happened, no doubt, in the uh, history of the Old Testament Jews, that because they saw fit to disobey God, they, uh, for 490 years, they ignored the seventh year Sabbath to let the land rest for 490 years. They disobeyed God, and then God said, all right, because you did that, I'm going to send you to Babylon for 70 years, and my land is going to have its rest. And, and again, uh, th there are some aspects of this, uh, the natural, physical city of Jerusalem, and it, God did bless it to be rebuilt, I think, as a token to us of God's promise of restoration and revival. But because of their sin, because of the sin of God's people, there came a time, and there were three separate exiles, but the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, they burned it. They burned it to the ground, and they destroyed the, the walls. You remember ne uh, Nehemiah, right? He had to go back and build the wall, help build the wall. Well, why did they have to build the wall? Because the wall was destroyed. And that city, that physical city of Jerusalem, was literally ashes for a period of time. But aren't you glad that God showing his covenant faithfulness toward his spiritual people that he blessed them to return and to rebuild that city. Now, this, this tells you the difference between how things are in time and how things are in eternity. They rebuilt the city, but it wasn't near as nice as it was before. He still gave them some beauty for those ashes, but they always pined away for Solomon's temple. It was never as good as it was before. And, and it wasn't. It, it wasn't. But... Thankfully, we don't have to settle for a diminished return for beauty for ashes in, in, when we get to heaven, right? <laughs> We're not going to look at heaven and be like, you know what? I really enjoyed going to Tyler Church, but heaven, I, I just remember some of those meetings we had back in church. And, you know, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. But I remember the good old days. I remember the, the great meetings we had. No, 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 no. <laughs> heaven is going to blow anything in, in this world out of the water, right? So you have this relationship that's focused on here, uh, first of all, with the bride of Christ, and second, all, second of all, with the land. So with that in mind, I want to go back to chapter 61 and in verse 4. This is the promise. And I'm so thankful that God is so gracious, particularly in these Old Testament prophecies where his people were so disobedient and they just messed up so much that whenever God promises judgment he always promises restoration on the back end he always promises judgment because he's holy and he will not be mocked but God is so gracious to remind his people even in the midst of judgment I have not forsaken you I will bless this land to be restored I will bless 
as it says here in verse 4, they shall build the old places. And they were allowed to do that in a natural sense in Jerusalem. But in a spiritual sense, we look at how God created this earth perfect. This world was not made for anything to die. The reason why everything dies is because of the effects of sin. We took this beautiful land, this beautiful creation that God made perfect, and we messed it up. But God is going to take this cursed, broken world, and he's going to burn it up. And what's he going to put in his place? A new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. They shall build the old places and they shall raise up the former desolations. Remember, the land would be called desolate, right? The land will be called desolate, but it's not going to be desolate forever. It's not going to be desolate forever because there's going to come a time when that land gets married, so to say. <clears throat> they shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations. Verse 7, for your shame ye shall have double. For your shame, that's speaking of the bride. For confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess the double, and everlasting joy, excuse me, everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment, and I hate robbery for burnt sacrifice. I will direct their work in truth and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So this is not just talking about the natural nation of Israel, right? It's pointing toward an everlasting covenant. Talks about bringing in the Gentiles in verse 9. But notice this marriage language right here in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. And that's speaking of the bride, right? And then in verse 11, he switches to the land. For the earth, the, the land that was desolate, the earth bringeth forth her bud as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. There in verse 10, we saw the language of a wedding, of a bride putting on these beautiful garments on the day of her wedding. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 16. And this is so relevant in the environment that we're in right now with the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade and the opportunity for the individual states to protect the sanctity of human life and protect innocent children from, from murder, it's beautiful here in Ezekiel chapter 16 that God presents his choice to love his people. Here in this depiction, he presents it as God loving a neglected, dead, apparently stillborn child. He tells this child to live. And if it's, he's commanding that child to live, it gives an indication that it's not alive. But we notice God's love and compassion toward this child that everyone else neglected. And he's using this 
picture to, dis to display his love toward his people, his love toward his bride. Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother was a Hittite. <clears throat> and Hittite. Pagan gods, pagan uh, nations that, that actually performed child sacrifice, no less. But they were saved from that environment. As for thy, they not, <clears throat> as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee, Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee. You were neglected. You were abandoned. No one showed any love for this little bitty child. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. It's just amazing to think about the fact of the wicked depravity of of man, but particularly in this case, women. How can a, how is it possible that a woman can forget her suckling child and not just forget? Not just forget. This is not a a thought of oh wait a minute I forgot about you for a couple hours. No, you are consciously saying I am casting out my child. And not only are you casting out the child, but it says your navel was not cut. It's physically attached to you still, and I'm still going to get rid of it. I'm still going to cast it out. And it's just gut-wrenching to see the, the depravity of the, the sinful nature that we have that someone could look at that beautiful blessing from God and say, I'm just going to just throw it in the trash. Just throw it in the trash. And we see that here in this world. Praise God that we have a hope that we're going to have beauty for ashes in this world. <laughs> All the wickedness we see in this world, it's going to be burned up and replaced with a, a place where only dwelleth righteousness. So this wicked, and notice thy mother was a Hittite, that this mother that doesn't, that, that doesn't love God, and because she doesn't love God, she just throws away her child. Cast out to the loathing of thy person in the day when you were born. But God passed by, in verse 6, when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. And I caused thee to multiply as the blood of the field. And thou hast increased and waxen great. And thou art come to excellent ornaments. And thy breasts are fashioned and thy hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. And yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord, and thou becamest mine. Aren't you good that God, aren't you glad that God looked at us in this wretched condition before the world began? And he didn't look at them and say, man, I don't want anything to do with that, that blood-stained child. No, he looked on us and it was a time of love, right? And he spread his skirt over us and he saw fit to choose us. But now it takes it from this, this, uh, bride being an, an unwanted, neglected baby to now a beautiful bride, okay? 
Verse 10, I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger's skins and I girded thee about with fine linen and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thy hands and a chain on thy neck and I put a jewel in thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver and thy raiment was fine linen, silk, embroidered work, and thou did eat fine flour, honey, and oil, and thou wast exceedingly beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy, thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, and it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Now, unfortunately, the rest of the chapter, we have this beautiful wedding ceremony and the, and the beautiful uh, bride that's brought before the husband and before the king. But unfortunately, you find that throughout the rest of the chapter, she's not a faithful bride. She's not a faithful bride. And we're thankful that God redeemed us in spite of all of that. But you see that beautiful language, that beautiful language that is the, the wedding uh, the the, uh, the language of a, of a wedding ceremony. We have that, that beautiful uh, love toward a husband and a bride that is exhibited in the, in the Song of Solomon. And the natural romance that Solomon had with that Shulamite maid, but that is pointing us toward the love that, that Christ as our husband has toward his bride. And, and we ought to love him. We're commanded to do that, to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind. And he's worthy of all of that. But what's really amazing about the Song of Solomon is the language of where the husband is just gushing over the bride. It's amazing that God could love us that much. And we have this beautiful picture of Christ and his bride and his church that we have fellowship with him now, but, but that bride is still marred to a degree with sin, but there's going to come a time at the second coming of the Lord that's being pointed toward here in Isaiah 61 and 62. At the, at the second coming of the Lord, that bride is not going to have any stains in her anymore. She neglected the love of her husband, but now she is going to be perfectly clothed with the, with the garments of, of righteousness and with beautiful adorned uh, wedding garments that are given to her by her husband. Um, let's go to Revelation 19. And in the book of Revelation, you have multiple different sections that provide a different perspective and a different angle and a different vantage point of the same time period, which is speaking of the establishment of the kingdom of God all the way until the second coming of the Lord. And here in chapter 19, you're having the conclusion of one of those sections, and this section focuses on Babylon, the fall of Babylon. And heaven rejoices when Babylon falls. This fallen world system collapses just before the second coming of the Lord. And everyone in heaven is describing the, the beauty of, of this bride that's about to come, the excitement. Because can you imagine... Uh, you think about um, the love of a, of a husband and a, and a wife, uh, but at that time, fiancés and, and uh, 
the anticipation and the bragging on the other spouse, so to say, that you have leading up to the wedding. You know, uh, I know some people may, probably may not meet a person uh, in person until until a wedding. I know some people like that. I knew a lot of people had not met Bethany until until we were married. But can you imagine the way that <laughs> that Jesus has been bragging? on his elect bride to all the angels in heaven since before the foundation of the world. I mean, think about how much God loves. Think about the, the way that, that Christ loves his bride and these angels who don't understand it. I mean, they, they, they understand righteousness and they understand that we're not righteous. We mess up all the time, but they, yet they're called to minister to us. I'm sure it's very confusing to them. That's why it says... Uh, the gospel, it says that such things that angels desire to look into. It doesn't make sense to angels that God would love us because he didn't provide a, a salvation for the fallen angels. It doesn't make sense to them. So can you imagine the anticipation um, that, that heaven has been having for the arrival of this bride that they've been hearing about ever since before the foundation of the world? And... And I know that was an anticipation for many years in advance, but now we're right on the precipice of the bride finally being, and there, understand there are people, there, there are uh, portions of the elect family of God that are already in heaven, right? But the full bride is not there yet. The full bride is not, is not there yet. And I can just imagine how Jesus is the son of God and that perfect husband has been bragging on his bride for, for eternity, right? And the angels are like, why are you bragging on these people? <laughs> I mean, they're a mess. They're a mess. And we've got to go get them out of problems all the time. I mean, that, that's, that's like the angel's full-time job is, you know, we're having problems. He's got to send angels to come help us. These are the people that you love. And now you've, you've had this narrative and this building for all of eternity and, you know, a thousand years away and 500 years away. But now we're at the, we're right there. And they know that they're right there, that the bride is finally going to show up. And you have this anticipation building in heaven. You have this anticipation building of the bride in its perfect beauty finally showing up. And this is the buzz in heaven. Revelation 19. A voice came from the throne. Verse 5. Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a great multitude as the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, she hasn't necessarily truly made herself ready, because the bride, the only way they can be ready is if the husband makes her ready, right? But finally... All of the elect family of God have all been born again. All of them are prepared. All of them are ready. And now, not only are, they, are their souls prepared, but now at the resurrection of the dead, their bodies are going to be prepared. And to her was granted that she might be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So what's this beautiful white garment, right? That The, the, pur the purpose of wearing a white dress on a marriage day, on a wedding day, is describing purity, right? The purity of the bride. But, unfortunately, what's the true depiction of the bride here in time? 
Our righteousnesses are filthy rags, right? We're not adorned like we ought to be. But at that day, we're going to be adorned with the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and the Son of God. The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Not our righteousness, but the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And then it immediately transitions into the second coming of the Lord. Verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And it has this beautiful depiction of Jesus Christ as the Son of God returning the second time. And then, in chapter 20, through the end of the book, in chapter 22, I believe begins a different section, a different perspective of the establishment of the kingdom of God all the way until the second coming of the Lord. And Jesus returns the second time, and now we have this beautiful depiction. Remember, the, the bride... There was a period of time where she was not in perfect fellowship with God, but now, at a later date, she is going to be called Hephzibah. The bride is going to be Hephzibah. My delight is in you. And the land was desolate. The land was cursed by sin. But now, there's a later date where that land will be married. That land will be Beulah. That land will be perfectly joined in union and fellowship with God. The bride will be, but this figurative land of Beulah will be as well. And what's this land of Beulah? What's this land of this final land of Beulah? Again, we can have many blessings here and partake of a portion of this Beulah land here in time, but I believe the, the ultimate fulfillment of this Beulah land is this new heavens and the new earth. Okay? And that's what we find here in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall, be there, <clears throat> neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Do you remember some of that language back there in Isaiah? That he's going to give joy for those that mourn, right? Well, what's the final fulfillment of this beautiful land? No sorrow, no death. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to comfort all them that mourn. And he's going to rebuild this, this beautiful land as the bride is made perfect. The bride in all of her white beauty of the righteousness of Jesus Christ comes before all of heaven. And you have this beautiful consummation of this eternal love story, right? This eternal love story between 
the husband, Jesus Christ, and the bride of Christ, and the bride is now made perfect, but also the land is married. The land is married too. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 62 and try to hit a few more points in this as we close. Verse 4, <clears throat> Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. Thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, or married land, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. That's just amazing to think about, isn't it? It's just amazing to think that God loves us so much. Don't turn over here because it would be very difficult for you to find it. Um, and I thought I had this marked, and there I went. And Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 and in verse 17. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, and he is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, and he will joy over you with singing. You know, isn't it beautiful that the song of Solomon is described as the song of songs, right? You know, he loves Solomon and Jesus Christ. They love their bride, and it's good to tell somebody that you love them. I wish I could sing. I really do. I know someone, a young man, that sang for his bride on their wedding day, and I probably, there's no way I could, my nerves could handle that anyway, but in my head, it would have been really cool to be able to do that. But isn't it amazing to think about the fact that Christ sings over us, right? He sings with joy. It's great to tell somebody that you love them, but if you have that ability, what an amazing thing to express your love to them through a song and to think that, that Christ loves us so much that he's in heaven singing about his bride. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to think about? That he sings over us in that way. The same way that a, a bridegroom would rejoice and sing over his love toward his bride. That's what we found there in verse 5. And then he says in verse 6, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night, Ye that make mention of the Lord shall not keep silence. God has called. We have that imagery there in the Song of Solomon too. Watchman and the bride is seeking. She made a foolish decision to not open the door when she should have. And now she's lost fellowship for a period of time with the, with the groom. And she's trying to find him. And she's going all over town. Where's he at? Where's he at? And the watchmen are the people that are directing her to where he's at. This is where you need to go. And God has called watchmen on the walls. He's called preachers to direct you to the husband, right? To direct you to Jesus Christ. And it is a, no doubt, a full-time ministry to be declaring this because we never keep silent. And if we do keep silent as minister of the gospel, we're dishonoring the husband. We, it's our calling. We're a debtor. We're debtor to preach the gospel, to tell the bride about the love that the husband has toward his bride. 
In verse 8, the Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the son of the stranger shall not drink thy wine, for thou hast labored. One of the songs, uh, I believe that one's entitled View the Land. The opening lines to that is, I've reached the land of corn and wine. I've reached the land of corn and wine. Where did that come from? Well, right here. There was a period of time because of their sin, because of their judgment, they were doing all the work. And they were uh, taking the crop of corn. But what happened? God suffered and allowed, as a judgment, their enemies to come in and take all that corn that they planted, that they harvested, and they just plundered them. Same way with their wine. But he said, look, I'm not going to continue to judge you because of your sin and, and let somebody else eat your corn and let somebody else drink your wine. No, you're going to partake of that with me in your kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Um, let's skip to verse 11. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world and claimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion. This is the message to the bride. Say ye to the daughter of Zion that the watchmen are called to proclaim. Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. Now understand, this was penned by Isaiah through the direction of the Holy Spirit looking forward to the cross, right? He was riding forward. But we can read the Gospels to where not thy salvation cometh, right? He shall save his people from their sins, pointing toward the cross. But now we can look back at the cross where Jesus declared it is finished, right? But this is pointing toward the Messiah. Behold thy thy salvation cometh and his work is before him the work of salvation the work that he finished of saving his people from their sins and then he says here in verse 12 and they shall be called the holy people this is the testimony of who the bride of christ will be called the holy people the redeemed of the lord thou shalt be called salt out and then it shifts to the land a city not forsaken a city not forsaken the, the people of God sinned, Adam sinned, and we've, we've carried on our father's legacy, unfortunately. And that sin has removed a degree of fellowship between his people and the Son of God. But Jesus Christ came into the world to remove all those barriers, right? To remove sin to where we would be in perfect fellowship with him and and Christ has loved his bride from before the world began and his anticipation it says for the joy that was set before him that because of Christ's love for his bride it was a heavy weight no doubt right for him to bear the penalty of sin and for him to have the God the Father remove a degree of fellowship for a period of time my God my God why hast thou forsaken me but he looked at all of that, and because of the love that he had for his bride and the joy that was set before him, he said, I'm willing to endure all that. Why? For the joy of his bride being with him in their married land, being with him in, in Beulah land. Um, I've really enjoyed the encouragement of uh, Elder David Crawford, pastor in McClenney, Florida, and 
as I've uh, corresponded with him a few different times and we ask how one another's doing and everything. And, and he, he always says, I'm, I'm praying for you and your bride. And I love the language that, I, that Brother David has used so many times as he's, as he's mentioned that to me. He said, marriage is such a blessing because it is straight from the heart of God. Marriage is straight from the heart of God. Why? Because it is depicting the love that Jesus has for us, right? It's depicting the love that Jesus has for his bride. And what a blessing to have a God-honoring marriage that we can feel a little bit of that here in time too, right? I, I know that I love the Lord. I know that the bride loves the Lord. But to, but to understand the, the love that he has toward me, not just in, a, in an abstract sense, but in an experiential sense. Because God has been so gracious to give us this institution of marriage where we can feel that, that perfect communion and fellowship. And then the... the Exciting thought, right? That we will have that intimacy and perfect love and perfect fellowship and perfect communion with our Savior in the eternal Beulah land. What, a, what an exciting thought to consider, right? The married land, the Beulah land. But what a blessing for us to have a knowledge of that and an understanding of that and to feel the love of our Savior here in the kingdom of heaven right now as well, right? In the Song of Solomon, that bride was separated from fellowship because of her own mistakes, because of her own sins. She was separated from fellowship with her husband for a period of time. But then she saw him through the lattice work. She, she saw glimpses here and there. She saw glimpses. And then she had that anticipation building herself because she was separated from fellowship and love uh, from her Savior, and she saw him through the lattice work. She saw these little bitty glimpses, and then when she finally got back to him, <laughs> she said, I held him and would not let him go, right? And, and it's great to have that perspective. That's the perspective we need to have of Christ here in time, but, but I would say it's really more so true on the other end of the spectrum. In heaven... Christ is going to hold us and he's never going to let us go, right? <laughs> it's good to think about us saying we're going to hold Christ and we're never going to let him go. But the, at the end of time, he's the one that's holding us. He's the one that's going to hold us and he's never going to let us go because of the love that our husband has toward his beloved bride, the church, that for some reason we hope to be a part of. <laughs> for some reason he saw fit to love us. For some reason he saw fit to choose us. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.